are in our last week, and, and I, I got to ask this of you, and I know this is going to sound a little pretentious, uh, I understand this, but this is something that I want you to do today, and here, here's what it is. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. And like I said, that sounds, it, it sounds a little bit pretentious. It, it sounds like, oh, you've got something. I do. And here, here's the problem, here's the problem when, when we know this. We know this. I know this. When I'm absolutely honest with myself, and the reason we don't like this is because there's always a homework assignment. When I'm honest with myself, there's always someone I need to talk to. There's always someone I need to forgive or ask for forgiveness from. When I'm honest with myself, there's always something that I need to change. There's always something we have to do. And I want you today to be honest with yourself because in order for that to happen, you have to be able to admit that maybe, just maybe, we've been missing something. And here's what we know. Here's what we know. Self-deception is always bad, right? Self-deception always leads us in a bad direction. When you're around people that are deceived or the, around people that just don't understand what's going on in their life, what happens? It's always a bad deal. I mean, think back to your family growing up. If your mom or dad just was absolutely honest with themselves, what would have happened? If you would have been honest with yourself, how would have life changed? If you would have been really honest with yourself at a younger age, you probably would have stopped dating that person quicker. Uh, if you were really honest with yourself, maybe you would have changed your major or done something different in your career path. If you were really honest with yourself, things could have changed. And so what I want us to get at is this idea that when we're truly, truly honest with ourselves is the moment that God can really start to work in our hearts. It's the moment where we can really start to see what is it we're holding on to that we shouldn't hold on to. Uh, a guy named Thomas Nagel, he wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos. Let me go ahead and put that up there. It's, uh, it says mind and cosmos, which sounds good, but it's the uh, subtitle that's even bigger. It says why the materialistic neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false, which I think you have to have a PhD degree to understand what he just said there. But what, what he says in this book is this. He goes, hey, here's the deal. Atheists, we're just as bad as Christians in this. They always get on Christians. We, we use the gap God. It's like when we don't understand something, we just go, oh, it's God, it's God, it's God. He goes in the same way, guys, what we've done is this, is every time there's a gap, every time there's something we don't understand it, we just say, oh, it's natural selection, it's natural selection. Oh, billions of years, natural selection. And what he says is he's an atheist still to this day. He says, guys, this whole idea of natural selection has so many holes in it because of the phenomena that we see. We've got to get better as scientists. We've got to get better at understanding these things. And he calls out really the atheistic world and people were very mad at him for this. And so he wrote this book and that's what it's, what it's talking about. But in another book, he says something that's very tough. And it's something that I think a lot of people would be freed by if they could actually say, but this is something. And I think many of us can, can understand. He says this, he goes, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want there to be a universe like that. So I think for some of us, that's where we have to get to today. It's that, that, that transition from understanding, like believing that we have something against an area, but really understanding that it's not that we don't believe, it's that we don't want to believe. 
See, I think that's the problem many of us have, and it's not just with God. I think for many of us, it's in different areas is where it's this contrast between I don't believe it because I've got all these things. I looked at the facts. I looked at the scenarios. I see what God's done or supposedly did. I look at what science says, and I go, I can't come to that conclusion. But the other one is I don't want to believe it, which means this. I see who God is and I don't want to live my life that way. So what I do is I find all of these questions, I find all of this support and I make that the part of my faith. See, I believe this is one of the biggest reasons people step back from faith. We talked about the biggest reason last week when we talked about, you know, the, the idea of suffering and pain in the world. But I think one of the biggest reasons people step back many times is they start to live their lives and what was okay as a kid, the rules that were okay as a kid changed as we became adults. And we look at what God's calling us to do or what God wants us to do. And we change our mind. It's not that I don't believe. It's that, you know what? I don't want to believe this anymore. I don't want this to be the way that I live. So I change my arguments. I change what I say because I don't want to believe it. See, this is the reason a lot of you have come up to me during this series or come up afterwards and said, hey, here's the deal. I've got friends. I've got family members. We talk. We talk through things. They say they have all these arguments. They say they have all this stuff. But every time we have a conversation, it's arguing. It's arguing. And I answer all their questions, but then they have more and more stuff. Here's why. Here's why. If your family members, your friends used to be Christians and now they're not, usually the reason that they're not is not because they found all this information that made them not believe in God. It's because of that. They don't want to believe in God. And this is a, a big thing to understand because no matter how much information you bring, when you don't want to believe in something, no matter how much information you're given, no matter how much proof you're given, it doesn't matter because you don't want to believe it. And this is why I think this quote by Blaise Pascal is so important. This guy, he was, in, he was considered just this child prodigy, but he said this. He says, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Because here's, here's the truth. Not many of us are on truth quests. Not many of us wake up every day and we're like, you know what? I will change my entire life if I just find the truth. Not many of us are that way. In fact, most of us are not on truth quests. We're actually on happiness quests. We're on happiness quests. And what we're going to do is we want to find a worldview and a set of values that allows us to be happiest. We want a worldview or a set of values that allows us to live our lives the way that we want. And when God's worldview and set of values doesn't line up with that, we change it. And, so, and many people actually come to faith because of that, believing that God's way of doing things will give them that happiness. And then about a year into Christianity, when they realize that God's not the genie they thought he was, they start to step away again. Because the truth is this, is we are looking for happiness, not truth. St. Augustine says it this way. He goes, when we love the truth when it enlightens us, we hate the truth when it convicts us. I mean, think about it this way. When you were arguing with your parents... Were you on a truth quest or were you trying to get your way? Did you sit down with your parents and you're like, Mom, Dad, I just want to find out the truth. We will stay here as long as it takes. We're going to find out the truth in this situation. No, you argued for what reason? To get your way. And there were times that you walked away knowing that you were wrong, but you got your way. I mean, think about how many times do we do this where we continue to argue about things even when we know we're wrong? Everyone in here has been in a situation where you've argued with someone that you love or you care about, that you're in a relationship with, and partway through the argument, what happens? You go, oh, man, I'm wrong. 
Do we stop at that point and admit it? No, we keep going. I mean, when you get married, this will be a commonplace. It's hilarious because my wife and I are both the same personality type. So we both, when we both, both know we're wrong, we can just keep arguing. The problem she has is I can see it in her face. She doesn't, she doesn't, like, she doesn't disguise it. When I say something and I know it hits her, she just starts smiling. And I'm like, oh, you're smiling. You know that I'm right. She goes, no, I'm not. I'm like, then why are you smiling? She goes, I'm laughing at how stupid you are. I'm like, no. Oh, you're like, women power. She's wrong, and you guys are defending her. That's the way that works. But, it, but it's hilarious because what is it in us that does that? Why are we this way? Why is it that when we know we're wrong, we still go forward in those things? See, I think there's things in our lives that, that we won't even acknowledge what we suspect to be true. I think this is, this is the idea. We won't even acknowledge what we suspect to be true, and we won't look for fear of what we might see. So I think this explains so much of our Christian life sometimes. I think sometimes we're afraid to look in the Bible because we're afraid it's going to tell us that we're doing something wrong. We're afraid to go into a small group because somebody may say, well, that's actually not the way you're supposed to do it. We're afraid to pray because we're afraid God may convict us. And many times we don't even look because we're afraid that we may find out that we're wrong. See, I think as a society, there's an area that we're trying not to look at right now. It's an area right now that I, I feel convicted of that we haven't taught on recently, but it's an area that, that's come, you know, in full retrospective, and it's the idea of racism. And I know that that's incredibly uncomfortable for many of us in this room. Some of you, you're like, finally, you're talking about this, but other of you, it's like, it's uncomfortable. And really, with, with what's happened lately and what's going on, it's been one of those things, and you guys have heard the story about Botham John, and I say Botham John, I listened to four different news stories to get his name right, and each one said it differently, so I'm if you know the right way of saying it, I'm just going to say it that way. It's Botham John, and he was murdered by Amber Geiger. If you don't know the story, basically she went into what she thought was her apartment, quote-unquote, shot him while he was doing nothing. He was unarmed. They had the entire deal, and then at the end of it, what happened was they convicted her of murder, but they, they gave her 10 years, and then at the end of it, his, his brother, Botham's brother, actually went up and hugged her, and after that, the judge hugged her and gave her a Bible. And it's one of those things where I've, I've started to look at things differently. I saw this happen. The first thing I do many times in these scenarios where there's a lot of racial tensions and I, as I look to all of my friends who are black and I go, are they reposting this? How do they feel about this? And I call up a couple pastors that I know and I call up a couple of people. I'm like, what's, what's going on here? And I realized that there was a story under here. There was a, a tension under here that while we love the idea of forgiveness, there was something underneath that didn't make sense. I mean, the sheer fact that she only got 10 years. I mean, I have a friend who is in ministry who is black, who got more, will serve more time than she did for robbing a pizza delivery guy for $32. And, and I've heard people talk about it. It's the, it's the white woman tears. It's the fact that when a white woman cries, she gets out of anything, traffic tickets, all these things. And they're looking at this and they're going, what, what is going on here? And not only that, I think one of the biggest things that they look at, they're like, why is the judge hugging? Why is he hugging? Why is this going on? And it's not that they're, here's what I, I don't think is, I don't think anybody's going, people need to spend more time in jail because jail doesn't solve anything. I think the problem is this, is they're just wanting so badly for a young black man who was in the same place to be treated with the same love and grace that she was. They would love for that to happen, for the judge to come down and say, I believe in you, I love you, here's a Bible, for the white person who may have been the victim to come over and hug the black person saying, I forgive you. 
and you see these things and it feels awkward and we don't want to uncover them. And then after that, you have the guy who was the main witness get killed right before the civil case. And you're wondering what's going on there. And then you have a Tatiana Jefferson who was just shot in her house. And these things, they make us uncomfortable and we don't want to look underneath because we're so afraid what we find will be much bigger and much messier than we thought. And here's the truth. It is. It absolutely is. But as a church, those are the things that we have to talk about. Those are the things we have to figure out. Those are the things where we have to start conversations with that lead to change. And I'm only giving this a small part, and that's wrong of me, but it's something that when I look at, when I think of what's something we won't look at because we're afraid of what we'll see, racism is what comes to mind. And so let me say this. There's something in every single one of our lives that we do the same thing with. There's something in every single one of our lives that we hold tight. And there's a, there's a sin that we hold on to that we know, we know it's not right. We know we should pay attention to. We know we should deal with. But we're so afraid if we start to look under those sheets, we will find something that's too hard to deal with. Something that, that reminds us that, yes, maybe, maybe we've failed at something. Maybe if there's a God, then we've messed up. See, I think one of the biggest reasons we don't look to God is because we're afraid if there is a God, if there is a God, then I'm guilty. Then I'm guilty. See, we don't want there to be a God. I think there's many people who don't want there to be a God because if God, then I'm guilty, which means there's things I've done that I need to confess. There's things I've done that I need to unearth and let out. There's things that I've done that will literally haunt me and follow me my life. Things that I maybe made all kinds of excuses for. Things that I've wiped, you know, swept under the rug. Things that I don't want the world to know. But what's crazy and what's insane about this is we know this as Christ followers. Yet this keeps us here is this idea that when we bring stuff into the light, God forgives and God moves on. But we're so afraid that when we do that, that people around us will know and look at us and say, if God, if that's true, then I have to pay attention to that. See, I think one that's tougher for us is this, is if God, then I'm accountable. It's crazy when you look at the story of the Garden of Eden, and there's people that will say, well, that's not a really a true story. It's just something that's made up. Well, if it is, it is the greatest beginning to the narrative of humanity. And here's why. Because it's literally a perfect setup. And I believe if all of us are honest right with us, with ourselves, we would see ourselves in the same place. It's a perfect set of everything is good, but the human goes, but I'm not responsible for it. I'm not ahead of it. It's not mine. And so what do we do in the very perfect setup? Someone goes, I want to do it my own way. I mean, isn't that the Christian life? We see what we should do, but we go, but I want to do it my way. God says it is this way, but you know what? I'm going to do it my way. This is exactly who we are. It's this idea of accountability. This idea that we won't even look to someone who's perfect and go, I want to follow after him. We would rather do it ourselves. It's called the illusion of autonomy. This idea that I can make my own choices. I'm not accountable to others. Here's the truth, guys. The most dangerous people are those that are unaccountable. If you're unaccountable to no one, you are the most dangerous person. Actually, if we look in our lives, the time where we were most unaccountable is the time where we made the most regretful decisions. And you know what's really scary? 
is when two unaccountable people get married. That's really scary. Yet we look at our world and we decide, I want this illusion of autonomy. I want, I want to do it on my own. I don't want to admit there's God because if I admit there's God, that means I need to submit to him. And we hate the word submission. Even though God is perfect, even though God is sovereign, even though God is all powerful, this, powerful. why is it we can't even admit that somebody has a better idea than us? It was funny, my, my wife actually sent me a meme the other day, and I was like, oh, this is so perfect. It's like, in my mind, I'm thinking of the perfect thing, but then somebody else in the group says, this is what we should do, and it's the same thing I thought of, and immediately I'm like, oh, that's not a good idea. <laughs> Why do we do that? Why is it that we want it to be our idea, our thing, when there is a perfect God that says, I've got a plan for your life, but you need to be accountable to me? Why, are, why is that so hard? The toughest one, though, is this, is if God, then I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Go back. Maybe not. I'm wrong. There we go. It's just out of order. I'm wrong. This is really tough. And if I had some of you have to say it right now, you may not be able to. We, 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 there's something about us inside of us that's this pride that just cannot admit what we know to be true. We know in our minds, we know in our hearts, but we just can't say it. I think all of us in here will have a story a little bit like this. My, my dad, one of his favorite movies, if not favorite movies, is Tombstone. Uh, story of Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, Western, all that. And, you know, it's that whole idea of like you see yourself in the Wild West, you know, shooting people in the name of God. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> I guess he's a pastor. Um, so we're watching it. And in the movie, there's this moment where the bad guys take out uh, this wedding and, and all that um, wholesome movie. And, uh, and so they, they take it out. And this one, the guy off screen says this. He goes, looks like we win. And like everyone's dead. And so it's like, he's just saying, looks like we win. And me and my dad started a conversation. He says this to the guy named Curly Bill, who's a really bad character. And it's because he has curly hair. Uh, and I said it was somebody else. And he's like, it's Curly Bill. And I'm like, no, it's somebody else. And so my dad invites the entire family in. And he's like, all right, let's listen to this. And my entire family goes, oh, it's definitely Curly Bill. I'm like, no, it's not. So about a week later, my dad on his computer gets up the original script of Tombstone. And on the original script of Tombstone, it says, Curly Bill says, looks like we win. I'm like, oh, that's just, that's an old transcript. That's not, that's not real. And I was like, it's that. I'm like, nope, nope, it's not. I think everybody in here probably has a moment like that. Something your sister or brother or family member have decided to say, hey, this is not true, but there's just something about us that won't say that we're wrong. Here's the truth. We know this. We know this, right? We know this, that humility is always what leads forward, Right? We know that humility always makes us the bigger person. Humility always makes us wiser because humility always leads to the right conclusion because humility actually allows new information. I mean, we know this. The most direct route to what's right is admitting, is admitting that you are wrong. Like the quickest way to move towards something good is saying, I was wrong. But this is tough for us. And so many of us were in this place. We're in this place where we're like, all right, if God, then I'm guilty. If God, I'm wrong. If God, I'm accountable. And we don't like this. And there's a lot of people especially that don't like the accountable one. There's a lot of people that don't like the idea that God's got a better thing. Here's the problem. These aren't arguments, right? Why don't you believe in God? Well, I don't like the fact that I'm guilty, wrong, or accountable. Well, that's not an argument. And so what we've done, I think many of us in this room have done, 
is even if we believe in God, we've gone, you know what, I don't want to believe right now that I'm wrong. I don't want to believe right now that I'm accountable. So we find ways of defending ourselves. And I think this is something that has happened so much in our families and outside the church and people that leave the church is we don't like this idea of God, so we find reasons not to believe. We find arguments. There's a phrase that Craig Rochelle uh, is a pastor of Life Church. He said this. He goes, some people are just fundamental atheists. And here's what, here's what fundamental atheist means. They may say that they're Christian, but if somebody from the outside watched their life, watched what they did, watched their family life, all that, there wouldn't be any inclination that they were actually Christian. They say it with their mouth, but there's nothing in their life that changes. Therefore, they are fundamentally atheists. See, I, w- I want you to understand this. You may say you're a Christian. You may be in here right now. But there's something that you know that what's something you should be doing right now that's not right. You know there's something in your life that you need to uncover. You know there's something that you don't like, and you don't like what God makes you feel. And so you may show up on Tuesday or show up on Sunday, but your life is fundamentally away from God. See, many of us, our, our question was never the existence of God. It was the resistance of what he brings into our lives. But God has an answer for all these things. And really God's answer for it is much better than what we have come up with. Because here's the deal. If God, there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness. Romans 5.8 says it this way. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated for us. He did it on purpose. He did it on purpose. But what do we have to do? It says, you know, he demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. What does that mean for us? That means we have to actually admit we were at fault. We see the word sinners all the time. What does that mean? That means we have to go, all right, you know what? I did it on purpose. All right, you know what? The excuses, I'll, I'll just say the excuses aren't valid. I did it. I did it. I was wrong. And when we do that, God's like, all right, here's forgiveness. And he did it while we're still sinners. He did it knowing that we were going to continue to mess up. He did it knowing that there were going to be days where we wanted to even act like he doesn't exist. And he did it through sacrifice. A lot of atheists get angry at the entire Jesus narrative, the idea that Jesus had to die on the cross, all the blood, all the gore for our sins. And people go, well, why didn't God just say, I forgive all your sins? Here's why. Because without sacrifice, there's no love. Without sacrifice, there's no love because God didn't just want to save us. He didn't want to just forgive us. He wanted to enter into a relationship. And for you to have a relationship, for you to have someone that loves you, you have to know this. What? They have to sacrifice for you because someone who is unwilling to sacrifice for you does not love you. See, that's how we know the love is real is that God, that Christ was willing to sacrifice for us. Because if God, there's forgiveness. But if God, there's something much more. There's relationship. There's relationship. See, when we resist accountability, we resist relationship. We know this, right? Because in, in, when we're a kid growing up, when we resisted our parents' accountability, what died? Our relationship with them. But when we have relationship with Christ, I mean, how incredible is it that the, the God that created the world, the God that created the earth, the God that did all these things wants to sit with us, wants to laugh with us, wants to cry with us, wants to walk through life with us. I said this before, God wants to be father, not the reflection of our earthly fathers, but the perfection of father. So he goes, I want to forgive you, but that's not it. I also want to walk with you because I know you're going to need help. I know you're going to need wisdom. So I don't want to just leave you where you are. 
See, God brings us forgiveness. God brings us relationship. And what he gives us last is so important. If God, then there is truth. There is truth. There's basis for morality. There's basis for truth. There's basis for justice. See, with truth, there's a reason for the oughts in life, what we ought to do, what we ought to say, what we ought to act, the things that we ought not to do. Because if there is no basis for truth, and we all know this, we all know this, we'll hold everybody to our justice, but we won't hold ourselves to that same level. Someone can hurt us and I want them to pay for it, but I can hurt somebody else and I don't want to have to pay for it. See, with God, he gives us a basis for truth. He helps us understand what we ought to do. Because here's the truth. Do we need religion? No, but we do need relationship. And if the question was this, if the question is, who wants God? Let's just all be honest. There's moments in our lives where some of us don't want God. In fact, I'll say there's moments in all of our lives where we're like, I wish I wasn't held to this standard. But if the question is, who needs God? All of us do. And here's what's interesting. And I know many of you, you've grown up in church. You've grown up in the church for a while. You've grown up in Christianity. And you see these things, forgiveness, relationship, truth. And we go, oh, that's nice. How, what else do you have? Just be honest, we do. And we see those things. We're so used to hearing. We're so used to God loves us. God forgives us. God wants a relationship with us. God gives us truth through his word. And we're so used to it, we don't understand how great it actually is. So we make up other things to go along with it. And that's where we get confused with the fake gods. If you guys remember the second, the second week, we talked about the gods that never existed. The fact that people say, oh, if you really love God, then nothing bad will ever happen to you. That's not what God promises. If you love God, then he'll always, you'll always feel his presence. No, that's not what God promises. God's always there in the gaps. That's not what he says. Here's what God gives us. He goes, I'm going to forgive everything you do, no matter what it is. And I knew you were going to do it ahead of time. I'm going to walk with you through this life and be the best father you can have. And I'm going to give you the truth to live. And through that, I'm going to give you purpose and something better at the end with heaven. Some, some people... Don't, don't realize this, but Jesus actually had brothers and sisters. Um, I think that'd be pretty awful to be Jesus' brother. It's like, I think every, like, it's like Mary's constantly going, hey, why can't you be more like Jesus? Well, he's the freaking son of God. So, like, what do you want me to, what do, you want me to do? But here's, here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. Um, you actually find out some of Jesus' brother's names in the Bible is that when Jesus started his ministry, and a lot of people don't realize this, when Jesus started his ministry, his family thought he was crazy. They did. They thought he was crazy. It's one of those things in the Bible that if you're trying to write the perfect narrative, the perfect story, you don't put that in there. You don't put that literally his family was like, hey, let's get Jesus in the house. Hey, Jesus, stop doing this. You're crazy. And then what happened? He started doing his ministry. They started coming along thinking maybe this is possible. They started seeing the miracles. They're like, okay, maybe he is who he says he was. Then he died. Then everybody's like, well, I guess he wasn't. And then he rose from the dead and they went, oh, he is. And James was one of those guys. James was a guy. He was his brother. James didn't believe. James was the one calling Jesus crazy. James was the one that was doubting him. Then all of a sudden, Jesus came back to life. James saw him. James met him, and he went, well, I guess my brother is Christ, which is a hard thing to come to, right? I mean, how hard would it be to admit that your brother or sister is some sort of deity? Like, it would take a lot to get to the point where James literally followed after Jesus so much that he was stoned to death. He goes from thinking his brother is crazy to a place where he's willing to give up his life 
willing to give up his life for what he believes. And so what he writes in the book of James is very profound. Let me just say this about the book of James. We talked about before about reading the book of John to find out more about Jesus. You read the book of James to be kind of smacked upside the head. I'll just tell you that. Like, if you're reading this, you're like, oh, I'm just going to go read James. Just be prepared. James is one of those guys that's like, hey, um, stop doing that. That's stupid. Let's move on. That's James. And so he's writing this letter. He's writing it to the church, and he is explaining kind of what he's learned from being around his brother, Jesus. In James 4.8, he says this. He says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. If you guys have heard it before, draw near to God. He goes, hey, if you want to know God, draw near to him. Come near to him. He will be there. And then he says, this is more of the slap in the face. He goes, wash your hands, you sinners. Not many people like that. Hey, sinner. Like, what he's saying is, just admit it. Seriously, just admit it. You've sinned. We all know it. We all saw it. They saw it. They, they know what's going on. Just admit that you've sinned. He says, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He goes, stop playing games. Stop making excuses. Stop having one foot in and one foot out. Stop living this life. And then he says, this is the final thing in James 14. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. In James 4.10, he says, and he will lift you up. Here's, what, here's what's interesting about that verse. It doesn't say humble yourself before God and he will step on you and say, well, you are a petty person. It doesn't say humble yourself before God and he will, for the rest of your life, remind you of everything you've done wrong. It says, if you humble yourself before God, he will lift you up. He will lift you up. See, not only is God perfect, not only does God have a better plan, but he rewards humility with lifting us up. See, what's crazy is so many of us, we fight this idea of God and him being right and admitting things so much because we're afraid it will bring us down. But God says this. He says, the moment you admit it, the moment you realize there's fault, the moment you humble yourselves is the moment that I lift you up. That's why we need God. It's perspective, it's change, it's forgiveness, it's purpose, it's truth. Let's pray. God, I thank you uh, for who you are. God, I thank you that um, you sent your son, that you sacrificed for us to show us the love that you have for us. God, I pray that um, this week as, as we go throughout our week, God, I pray that you, uh, you bless our conversations, you bless our talks. God, I pray that as we come into contact with people that are just absolutely don't want to believe in you, God, I pray that we'll love them, that we'll care for them, that we'll be there for them till they're at a point where they want to listen. God, I thank you that uh, this week we have the opportunity to grow closer to you. God, I pray this week that you will get a part of our hearts, get into our hearts and help us understand the areas that we need to let go. And that God, as we humble ourselves before you, we will realize that we're being lifted up towards you. God, we thank you for that. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.